0: On a sunny morning in late March, Lucas, the Coloradoan's new photographer, and I headed to Livermore. Hi! Howdy. How are you? Nice to finally meet you. Hi, you're Aaron. We've been texting this whole time. I'll shake hands yeah. with you. <laughs> sure. Hi, I'm Bill. Bill, I'm Lucas. Hi. Nice to meet you. Who's this?
1: This is Gayla. Gayla. Hi.
0: I wasn't quite sure what we'd find. I'd been working on a story about the Coloradoan turning 150 years old, and after a lot of research, I tracked down Bill McClelland. You see, the Coloradoan's history starts with Bill. Or, more accurately, his family. Bill's great-grandfather, Joseph Simpson McClelland, or JS as he was known, founded the newspaper in the spring of 1873. After I found Bill, he graciously invited me and Lucas up to his home. He promised us some chili and said his wife, Jeannie, who you'll hear in the background here soon, would pull out some old McClellan family documents for us. But when I walked into their bright dining room that March morning, I realized I had unexpectedly hit gold. The golden, or yellowed, pages of a dozen old newspapers sat behind glass frames in the McClellan dining room. They dated back more than a century and showcase stories about J.S. and his descendants. Um, how did you come to have all of these papers? And Being a McClellan like Yeah, just handed down over to No,
1: all, all, all the family, really, if you look through the, everything, they were all into newspapers and journalism and a lot of them agriculture and that kind of thing.
0: That was music to my ears. It's hard to wrangle 150 years of history, especially that of a newspaper. Since 1873, when J.S. McClellan started the Coloradoans' forerunner, the Larimer County Express, the newspaper didn't really cover itself. That's just not what newspapers do. So here I am, a century and a half later, trying to do just that. I'm Erin Udell, and you're listening to episode 34 of The Way It Was, a podcast podcast. From telegraphs to teletype, the Coloradoan looks back on 150 years. Extra, extra, hear all about it. When Lucas and I met Bill and Jeannie, I had a lot of questions, including one that I've been struggling to answer.
1: They're not related.
0: Do you happen to know if McClellan Drive is named after your family in Port Collins? I happen to know that. It, it, it was?
1: It was named after J.S., yeah. my great-grandfather.
0: Do you remember when that was? When? Yeah.
1: I think it was about 75, but I have it in okay. writing.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm I'm happy you could confirm that. I couldn't find any way to confirm that, so I was... You were my last time. We have back. a
1: lot of stuff we could confirm. <laughs> okay.
0: So let's kind of just jump back to the, the very beginning. So um, so your father was um, Joseph Henry McClelland. Is that correct?
1: N- yes. That's my dad. Yes. Right.
0: And then his dad was Henry. Henry.
1: Henry Simpson.
0: And then Henry's dad was JS. That's correct. Okay. Ooh. Oh. Perfect. Oh my goodness. As we were going through some McClellan family lineage, Jeannie, who had been digging through the couple's trove of documents, slipped a photocopied news article from 1978 across the table to me. There it was definitive proof that the city named Midtown's McClellan Drive after Bill's great grandfather, J.S. And that's kind of how the rest of the morning went. I would ask a question. Bill would dig back in his memory, and meanwhile, Jeannie would dig through the stacks of family documents sitting on their dining room table, finding old articles or family trees to refer back to. The first part of our interview hinged on J.S., a Civil War veteran who, after serving in the Union Army, went to Galesburg, Illinois, where he started a newspaper, the Galesburg Free Press. A few years into his publishing career, though, J.S. made a decision that would change the trajectory of his life. He supported New York newspaper publisher Horace Greeley for president in 1872. Greeley would ultimately lose to Republican incumbent Ulysses S. Grant. And the people of Gillsburg stopped buying J.S.'s newspaper. Faced with a failing business, he headed west. So um, he left <coughs> Illinois.
1: And moved to Denver and worked for the Denver newspapers Mm -hmm. and thought that Fort Collins was uh, gonna boom and was gonna do well. So he moved to Fort Collins and he and Meldrum and I can't remember the other name. They went up with a wagon to Cheyenne and bought the printing press, but not only the press, the whole setup Mm. from the, ex-governor up there, Hmm. and uh, moved it down and set it up on the West Mall Mountain.
0: Stationed in his humble Fort Collins shop, J.S. used his hand press to print the first editions of the Larimer County Express. He distributed them to much fanfare on April 26, 1873. The founding of the express cemented J.S. as a pioneer of Fort Collins, and put him among the ranks of publishers trying to make their mark on northern Colorado. Among them was a man in Loveland who had a very familiar name.
1: Who, how are you related to GN, Udell?
0: I'm not. Okay, so this is news to you. Mm. So I... How can you not be? I, well, I'm not from Colorado originally. But neither was he. Where was he from? No. Oh my gosh, are we going to oh. make a <laughs> connection, a family connection? Here? So the, Well, we think you are. G. N. Udell, or Grotius Newell Udell, was also a Civil War veteran, out in Colorado to make his mark. In 1880, he founded The Reporter, Loveland's first newspaper, and the forerunner of the Loveland Reporter Herald. I had come across Grotius' name before. Like J. S. McClelland, Grotius went by his first initials, G. N. I wonder why. I vaguely remember looking into GN and seeing if there was a possible family connection years ago, but I didn't really look very hard. My ancestors were actually named Udall with an A. It wasn't until my great great grandfather that our family name changed to Udell, so I kind of wrote off any potential connection to GN a long time ago. But Jeannie's persistence made me give it another look, and I found out she was right. According to cemetery records, GN's great-grandfather, John Udall, was the brother of my five-times great-grandfather, Oliver Udall. It seems GN's side of the family made the switch to Udall at some point, too. I still don't know why. GN didn't own the reporter for long. He actually sold it to Frank McClellan, one of JS's sons, and went off to run several other newspapers across the country. JS, too, wasn't in the newspaper business very long. About six years after founding The Express, he sold it, kicking into action a dizzying succession of owners and a few name changes. We'll get into that after this short break. Oh, hi there, it's me heir to the Loveland Reporter-Herald fortune, Aaron Udell. I've been at this paper for a decade now, and I've been putting this podcast together for years. So many of you have been so supportive of the way it was, and I want to ask, if you don't already, to extend that support to the Coloradoan. Our digital subscriptions give you access to all the work we do at the paper. This podcast is just a tiny, tiny bit. If you want to subscribe, head to ColoradoIn.com slash podcast offer. Local news needs your support. My distant cousin? Newsman Grotius Udell would approve of this message, I think. After starting Fort Collins' first newspaper, J.S. McClellan moved on from the business around 1880 or 1881. By then, he had homesteaded a huge orchard out in the Fossil Creek area. He was walking five miles one way to the express offices at night to set the type for each edition. He just got tired, Bill said. He sold the paper to some brothers out of New York. and Then they sold the paper, and then the people they sold the paper to sold the paper, it had this dizzying succession of owners after J.S., eventually settling with the McCormick brothers in 1907. By then, the Express also had a rival, the Fort Collins Courier. You see, the Express, then the Fort Collins Express, was a Republican newspaper. The Courier had been founded in 1878 as Fort Collins's Democratic paper.
2: But what historians generally date this to like the pre-1880 period, is one in which the, one of the, the primary ways that a newspaper uh, created an identity for itself was through the, the political party that it supported.
0: That was Michael Stamm, a Michigan State University history professor and historian specializing in media and journalism. Michael said a lot of newspapers used to be called the Republican or the Democrat because of their party affiliations at the time. But as time went on, that changed, and papers started dropping their political ties, moving instead toward neutral, nonpartisan journalism around the early 1900s. And that's ultimately what happened to The Express and The Courier. They both dropped their political ties, and by 1920, they were rivals no more. The McCormick brothers purchased The Courier, making them the owner of both of Fort Collins' newspapers that year. They officially merged a few years later in 1923, and the courier staff moved into the Express's building on East Mountain Avenue. And with that, the Fort Collins Express Courier was born.
2: If the goal is to, is to you know, the goal of the newspaper is to stay in business and to make money and to, while serving the community, why split the advertising dollars across two papers? If we just have one, then all the advertising money will go to the one. And you know as 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 some of these as the as the partisanship in some communities began to to mute a little bit, um, some communities found that it was just it it made more given the size of the community, it just made more sense commercially for there to be one newspaper um, newspapers, as I said earlier, i mean you know after World war one um newspapers were starting to kind of evolve their understandings of what they were and were kind of you know journalism was moving into being objective, and newspapers wanted to be kind of more neutral and nonpartisan. And so, you know, in in many, in in many, but not all communities, it made sense to, you know, merge the papers. Um, So, and uh, and so, you know, a lot of them were family owned. And uh, at some point the families decided that, uh, you know, the chain started coming along and that would have been, you know, I mean, uh, you know, it depends on the different communities, but I mean, starting in the, you know, 30s and then into the 70s, um, Newspaper chains just grow and grow and grow.
0: After its merger, the Fort Collins Express Courier is purchased by a publisher named Alfred Hill. He's aggressive, with a keen news sense, and he's credited with shepherding the paper through some pretty tough times. In June of 1929, just a year after he bought the paper, a fire ravages the Coloradoan building on East Mountain, causing $80,000 in damage. Later that year comes the crash of 1929, and with it, a little thing called the Great Depression. Alfred does see the paper through it, and like Michael alluded to, a chain does eventually come calling for the Little Express Courier. In 1936, Alfred sold the paper to Merritt Spital, an Iowa newspaper publisher and founder of the Spital Newspaper Syndicate he quickly sets up Fort Collins Newspapers, Inc., a local corporation to run it. In 1945, the paper saw its next big change when its leadership changed the name from the Fort Collins Express Courier to the Fort Collins Coloradoan. And I will have you know that back in 1945 when this change happened, the term Coloradoan wasn't antiquated yet. Now it is. Today, people just say Coloradan when referring to a Colorado resident, But they didn't back then. It's kind of crazy to think back to 1945 and imagine what that newsroom would have looked like. How different it would have been from today. But I'm sure that's the same for the journalists who worked at the paper in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. They probably would have looked back at JS's hand-run printing press and scoffed. After all, by the middle of the 20th century, the Coloradoan was transforming into quite the modern paper.
3: We had lots of fluorescent lights, but we did not have windows in the newsroom. And everyone had their own uh, Underwood or Smith Corona typewriter. And they were all clicking and clacking, and the bells ringing at the end of each line very quickly because we always had early deadlines that we had to meet. Uh, The phones were ringing. Uh, Everyone was talking. There were no... Cubicles. We were all in one big room. So it, it tended to be busy and noisy.
0: That is Jan Wyckoff. But back in the mid-60s, she was Jan Niebrigie, a cub reporter for the Fort Collins, Coloradoan. Jan's name stuck out to me the second I saw it. My first thought was, how do you pronounce that last name? The next was, oh, she's actually writing some good stuff. According to my research, women's roles, like a lot of things at the Colorado Inn, changed over time. The earliest female staffer I could find there was Betty Woodworth, a woman who had grown up in Fort Collins and started writing society news for the, wait for it, women's page, at least around the early 50s. Betty stayed at the Colorado Inn for around two decades, and in that time, her role changed. She went from writing engagement and wedding announcements to features and human interest pieces. She retired in 1976 as the editor of the community focus section, old newspaper account show. Jan's path was different. In the early 60s, she graduated from CSU, and after a short stint in technical writing, took a reporting job at the Coloradoan, covering the school board, city hall, water issues, planning and zoning meetings, the list goes on. As someone who has sifted through many an old Coloradoan, Jan's byline was one of the first I saw that belonged to a woman and was outside of the woman's page. I asked her, all these years later, what it was like being one of the few women in the newsroom.
3: You know, uh, it it certainly wasn't normal, but uh, it wasn't an issue particularly uh, as far as reporting goes. Uh, I I do know that when Louise came on staff, and her married name is Fierce, I cannot remember her maiden name, that she was from Iowa, and when she came on as a reporter, too, uh, we both were very happy, you know, to have a kindred spirit in the newsroom, but uh, I I was always treated well, um, and... It, it wasn't like a, an accomplishment that I wore. We were all reporters.
0: I was so pleased to have found Jan when putting together this podcast. She gave great insights into what the newsroom would have looked like back then, and selfishly on my part, she helped identify people in some old photographs that I found. Early on in this project, the curator at Fort Collins' History Archive unearthed some really neat negatives of Coloradoan staffers working in the newsroom in 1965. I emailed them to Jan, and she quickly shot back their names.
3: You emailed you those photos, and you were able to identify you know, the people in them.
2: What was it like to, to see those after so long?
3: Oh, it was—it took me right back to Dan. Um— you know that was a a a very impressionable time of my life i mean i was just starting my working career and and uh, uh that was the way things would be forever it t- it took me a while to realize that nothing is quite forever but uh it it was really an exciting time of my life
0: Frozen in time, those photos I sent Jan show black and white scenes from inside the newsroom. Editors and reporters sat near their boxy typewriters. One reporter posed at his desk, looking straight into the camera with a serious stare. And much less seriously, there was a photo of editor Ron Brown. He was sitting at his desk, at work, with a bird on his head. Like a pet bird.
3: And you didn't have any idea about the bird on his head in that photo? I
4: I don't, but my father was a huge animal fanatic, you know, so I'm sure that there has to have been a story there, but I don't know what it was.
0: Yeah. That was Kathleen Burris, formerly Kathleen Brown. Her father, Ron Brown, worked as a reporter, photographer, and eventually as an editor at the Colorado Inn in the 1960s and early 70s. Kathleen more or less grew up in the newsroom. On Saturday mornings, her father would take her and her younger brother Tony to work with him to give their mom a break. There, they would sit and watch the Colorado Inn's quartet of teletype machines, boxy electromechanical devices that could send or receive type messages, spitting out stories from far and wide on the Associated Press's newswire.
4: My earliest memories of the Colorado one, my, my fondest memories are are watching the teletype machine, you know, because it was my job to sit on this little metal stool and watch the teletype machine. And when it started typing, I was supposed to wait until it was done typing, and I would rip the page off and take it to him, and he'd mark it up with a red pen, and, and then he'd hand it back to me, and I had to rush it to the editor then. Uh, it was imperative that I be quick with both things, you know, that I wasn't allowed to be distracted or, or go do something else in between. And frequently I got M and M's as a reward for this, so it was a good job.
0: For Ron, journalism was a family affair. And it didn't stop on those Saturday mornings.
4: Pretty much any time that, that he was home he 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 would assign us. There were there were six of us kids. And he would have us um listening to the scanner to notify him of anything, you know, the certain codes came on the scanner. And we would all pile in the car. We 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 virus, We went to car accidents. We went to all kinds of various assorted of things. And it was always great excitement, you know, because you're trying to get there before the first responders got there, so that he could get the best pictures. Because of course, back in those days, they would they would put gory pictures on the front page, you know. So he wanted the goriest worst pictures possible, so that he could be on the front page of the paper.
0: Those family field trips to car crashes and breaking news events came to an end in 1965, when the state dry goods department store caught on fire. Ron rushed his kids to the scene, of course his camera in tow. But it would turn out to be a deadly fire. You see, one of the walls of the building actually fell on a firefighter and the fire chief Cliff Carpenter, killing Chief Carpenter.
4: I remember that one specifically because that was the last one we were allowed to go to because my brothers had nightmares afterwards. I remember also on a happier note, I remember that there was um, a thoroughbred horse that was very expensive and it just had a foal and she broke her leg. And normally in that day and age, that was an instant death sentence if a horse broke their leg. But um, because this foal and this horse were so valuable, They amputated her leg and gave her a wooden peg peg leg. And so my father went out and did a story on her and took pictures of her with her wooden peg leg and her foal. And while he was there, he had his car parked off the side of their driveway where there was a fence fencing off this pasture. And apparently a cow got out of the pasture and walked between the fence and his car and then decided it wanted to turn around and so it smashed in the whole side of his car while he was doing that story. <laughs> um, Kathleen's
0: dad left the Colorado Inn in 1971, right around the time that more change was on the horizon for the newspaper. I'm sure you're sensing a theme by now, constant change. By 1973, the Colorado Inn was getting ready to do two big things, look back on its past and also look ahead to its future. More on that after this quick break. All right, we're back with another way it was break, a little podcast intermish, if you will. Um, You all know the drill by now, right? Uh, all I was going to do is is beg you on my hands and knees to subscribe to the Colorado and, and support the fine work we do. But I don't have to get into that. You guys are smart. You know what to do. Uh, so I'm just going to get a Diet Coke and I'll see you in like five, sec- 10 seconds. BRB. So you mentioned um, just a few minutes ago before I started recording that Back then, for 1973, the Colorado one would have been turning 100. Yes. What do you remember about how that was covered?
5: Oh, they did uh, some stories about the origin of it. As I recall, it was a fellow came out who would – it was right after the 1872 election, and I guess Horace Greeley uh, had unsuccessfully – had a campaign for the presidency, the Mugwump Republicans, I think it was. And one of his supporters was a newspaper fellow that came out after the defeat of Greeley and uh, started up the Coloradoan there in Fort Collins.
0: That's Roger Bellotti. And may I say, he has a killer memory. Now 72 and a retired attorney, Roger was one of the many former Coloradoan journalists who walked down memory lane with me for this project. When he was hired, it was the spring of 1973. Roger was 22, freshly graduated from CSU. The Coloradoan was a bit older, 100.
5: And they just, they ran various stories about uh, its origins there and then uh, developed over the years and I remember a lot of the stories that came out then. One I recall distinctly, this was a story that didn't get printed at the time, but the town of Timnath was actually bombed by the Japanese during World War II with one of those incendiary bombs or uh, balloons they sent over. And uh, the color uh, the Coloradoan had found out about it, but the FBI... Uh, got them to uh, not report the story because they were thought there'd be a panic here in the U.S. with these balloon, these incendiary balloons coming over. And um, that was basically, it was a 100 years of history at the time, and now another 50 years have passed.
0: When Roger started at the Colorado Inn, it was getting ready to make a big move. After 50 years at 145 East Mountain Avenue, the newspaper was moving on up and east, to a shiny new modern plant on Riverside Avenue. Around that same time, some big national news was bubbling up.
5: And when I started too, the Watergate case had just cracked wide open. And uh, I remember just a week or so after I started there, the whole Watergate uh, thing started. And then the summer of that year, we were... In the evenings, we'd all gather around and watch the rebroadcast of the hearings on PBS.
0: Right as the Coloradoan was moving to its new building, in early August 1974, the Watergate scandal came to a head, and President Richard Nixon announced he'd be resigning. Tucked into the paper the next day, beyond the big headlines of Nixon and new President Gerald Ford, was a full-page ad letting Coloradoan readers know some other big but local news. The Coloradoan had a new address, 1212 Riverside Avenue. The sprawling blonde brick building was state-of-the-art, with a new open concept, color-keyed departments all located on one carpeted floor, a new photo composition method of production, and most importantly, a -a half-a-million-dollar Goss Urbanite offside press capable of printing 50,000 newspapers an hour. This was the future. And now, and here's that theme again, it's the past. And then, so I I pulled some old photos. Mm -hmm. one One of my last interviews for this piece was with Dave Greiling, he was our executive editor from 1986 until 2002, and when he moved here to take the editor job, 1212 Riverside Avenue was no longer shiny and new. Here I am showing him pictures of it back when it was unveiled in '74.
6: Yeah, I'm gonna say
0: this was in '74. These were from '74 when they. '74
6: is when they moved in.
0: Yeah, and this is like when they were giving tours of the, the new what they build is a new and modern plant in eastern Fort Collins. Well, yeah, it was. Yeah. It was at the time. A few years after the Coloradoan's big move, it made another one, this time internally. In the spring of 1977, Spidal Newspapers, the Coloradoan's owner since 1936, was acquired by the newspaper chain Gannett, which still owns the Coloradoan to this day. Do you know what the general sentiments around the Coloradoan were in the community? In the community, well,
6: <clears throat> one thing again, speaking in general, basically nobody likes their hometown newspaper, and uh, obviously that's kind of an over broad statement, but uh, I do think there was a there was a certain um, feeling that Gannett uh, was outsiders because Gannett bought the paper or acquired the paper as part of the acquisition of another newspaper company in, well, before I got here, so maybe uh, early, late 70s, early 80s, uh, something like that. And that uh, uh, company had owned it for a long time, and they were... Uh, the personnel under them, uh, particularly in the newsroom, was very stable. There wasn't a lot of turnover, and with Gannett, there was a lot of turnover, particularly in the uh, department heads, editor, publisher, uh, forward-facing positions. So there was a the sense that uh, the uh, th- that the paper didn't know the community because they were always having to deal with. Was somebody
0: new? Dave went on to say this was a fairly predominant feeling in his early years at the paper. And while that seemed to calm down over time, there still was a fair bit of turnover. Later, layoffs and restructurings also took a healthy bite out of the newsroom staff. When I started here in 2012, there were about 30 newsroom employees. Today, there are 12. And funnily enough, many of them actually started working for Dave. So I believe that you, so you hired Rebecca, who's still here, Yep. you hired Pat, Yep. Miles, Yep. Kelly Lyle? Yep. Okay. You
6: got it. Surprise, there's still, that's a long time ago. Right. Yeah, that's a for, there's still to be four people on staff.
0: Actually, we realized later that Dave hired five of the Coloradoans' current newsroom staff, not four. Another element of the newsroom Dave's tenure intersected with was the Coloradoans' website. According to former staffers, we launched our first website in 1998. It's still here, too, by the way. Check it out, coloradoan.com. What were kind of conversations sounding like around the internet and websites and how that meshes with news back then?
6: (coughs) Excuse me. Well, uh... I think at first, and I'm not just talking about the Colorado, one, but newspapers, the newspaper industry in general, didn't. <clears throat> they weren't as forward thinking or looking as as some other aspects of society, shouldn't we say. Um, they, I don't think they appreciated, or at least very few appreciated the potential impact mm-hmm. of the internet. It was kind of kind of dismissed or, or shown it aside. Now, I mean, there were some exceptions, obviously. Some people were, were raising the alarm and saying, hey, this is going to be an issue for us, and we need to pay attention to it. Um, so, I mean, it kind of it gradually worked into the, into the conversation, I guess you'd say, and into the, into the fabric of things.
0: Ah, yes, the fabric of things. It's a lot different than when Dave was here. The internet, which was just starting to be talked about in small newsrooms like the Colorado Inn, is now how a lot of people get their news. But isn't that just how it goes? Things change. One thing seems to hold true for each of the Colorado Inn's various eras though. There are always people at the center of them. Publishers like J.S. McClelland and Alfred Hill making sure the paper stayed afloat. Reporters Jan Wyckoff and Roger Bellotti writing stories on the edge of deadline on their clacking typewriters. Ron Brown, who piled his kids into the car at all hours so he wouldn't miss any breaking news. And Dave Greiling, who shepherded the paper into yet another new age. This newspaper, like so many others, I've seen its fair share of that change. And it continues. After 150 years, I guess we better get used to it. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of The Way It Was. As you could probably tell, it was really special for me to trace the history of the Coloradoan, this place I've called home for the last 10 years. This podcast is part of a larger project on the Coloradoans' 150th anniversary, so head to coloradoan.com for my written story on the paper's past, as well as archive photos and some fun extras. Oh, and since my husband listens to this podcast, I just wanted to close things out by asking him a quick question. Hey Eric, if you're listening, I have a baby name idea for our future firstborn. What do you think about Grotius? It's a family name.